Tim Ballard serves as the co-chair of the White House Public-Private Advisory Council to End Human Trafficking and is the CEO and founder of the nonprofit organization Operation Underground Railroad, which saves kids from human trafficking. Tim's mission in life is to end human trafficking and allow victims to receive the treatment necessary for healing. Human trafficking, or modern-day slavery, is the fastest-growing criminal enterprise in the world. It's a $153 billion industry. Today, Tim sits down with me to talk through this issue and share some of the ways you can be involved in saving kids from human trafficking. He shares stories of faith and miracles and what the one thing is he believes would completely change the world for better, and his answer might surprise you. He talks about how you can get loud to help save the kids on July 30th for World Anti-Human Trafficking Day. You can learn more about what Tim and OUR Rescue are doing by going to OURrescue.org or by texting help them, one word, to 51555. Today's episode is a little on the heavy side and may not be appropriate for littles, so you might want to listen with headphones or listen when there aren't little kiddos around. Today, you guys, we have Tim Ballard, who is the CEO and founder of OUR Rescue, Operation Underground Railroad, and I'm so thrilled to have him here. Just very humbled that you would come to our home. Oh, it's awesome to be here. do this interview. Thank so, you. Tim, tell us a little bit about who you are and what you're all about. So... As you said, I'm the founder of Operation Underground Railroad, which is an organization, nonprofit dedicated to eradicating child sex slavery. And that we even have to exist is just still, after 17 years of doing this, is horrifying. Uh, but that's the reality. There's millions of children who are enslaved. They've been kidnapped. They've been trafficked. They're sold for sex. They're sold for labor, um, even organ harvesting. And it's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world, billions of dollars. Um, I spent 12 years prior to founding OUR as a special agent and undercover operator for the Department of Homeland Security, where I worked almost exclusively these kind of cases and eventually realized there was a need for a private approach to the problem. And hence, we created in 2014 Operation Underground Railroad. That's amazing. So what inspired you to start that? So I was working these cases. The laws in the United States changed in 2006 it, with the passage of the Adam Walsh Child Protect Act, which what that did was change my world because it opened up the doors for the United States to send investigators into foreign countries to find American pedophiles who were abusing kids overseas. For the first time, we can now prosecute them for crimes committed against children overseas as if they committed those crimes on U.S. soil. Okay. And so what that did was they said, okay, we, we need the child crimes investigators to, who are undercover operators to go overseas and find them mm -hmm. or else how are we going to catch them? Right. So they sent me, they sent me overseas and, and the unintended consequence of that, that no one kind of expected, least of all me, was if I didn't find the Americans, I always found the kids. So mm -hmm. I infiltrate the organization pretending to be a trafficker, a purveyor of child sex or whatever it is I needed to do to get in. Yeah. And then I'd get in and I'd find all these kids and it blew my mind how many there were. I knew there were a lot, but I didn't realize how, you know, we were so effective because we are the client. We look like the client that traffickers are looking to serve. Right. And so because of that, we got in so fast. No one has suspected we were working with the local police. So I'd get in, become the bait. And then I'd be told, hey, Tim, we have no more budget for this. And if there's no Americans, you got to come home. Well, if I come home... This whole case goes belly up because I'm the bait. I'm the I'm the guy that's yeah. gonna, and so it was just like weighing on my soul for years. I have to walk away from more than half of the cases. 
And then finally, I got into two cases in 2012, 2013, one in Haiti, one in Colombia, that I just went too far, and I couldn't, I couldn't back out. So I, either I came home or quit my job to just do these two, those two cases, and I quit, I quit my job, and we worked those two cases, and that was the beginning. Wow. Wow. So as you guys have grown this organization, what have you been able to do? I know that's kind of hard to describe in a small you know, period of time, but how has that grown and, and developed over the years? So at first, you know, once we got through those two big cases, we rescued 120 kids in Colombia. We rescued uh, almost 30 kids in Haiti. And then it was like, because after that, we didn't know what was going to happen. Like we, we, right. we risked big time. It was just like, you know, we had six kids and I was like, my wife, I'm like, what do we do? She's like, you have to go find the kids and God will just have will take care of us if we do that. It was a leap of faith. She was much more courageous than I was. I was scared to death as a provider of my family. Like, how am I going to do this? Um, and, and both those cases were successful and it got coverage. And then all of a sudden we got asked by other co- countries, come here, come here. And, and people started supporting us. It was after that that we started getting more organized. And I actually hired my former boss. Mm-hmm. At Homeland Security, John Lyons, I said, hey, I need help organizing this. I was always just the ground level operator. I needed an administrator. And that's when when John came over, that's when we really streamlined our processes and I and put together the, the, the packages and the tools that we could then deliver to the countries we work in. And so today, because of, of that growth and because of the support that people gave us, I never dreamed we'd be here. But we were at 26 countries. We do the aftercare as well and the rescue operations from every angle. We have every tool from from digital forensics to canine units to mobile labs that we build to just the the cold, hard, undercover operations that we can pretend to be the American traveler. Um, And because of that, we we have now uh, hit over or we're close to 4,000 rescues and we just hit our 2,000th arrest a couple weeks ago. Wow. that's so, And moving faster now than ever. So. Yeah, that's incredible. So tell me a little bit about how you do that as far as going into another country and working with their law enforcement. And then also, I always wonder how you guys feel safe going somewhere where the laws are not your own. Yeah, it's it's always risky. So we, we show up with the law enforcement and half our cases roughly are here in the United States too. People don't realize that. Okay. Um, but we show up to the jurisdiction, whatever, wherever it is, and we say, look, we know it's a problem. We know it's happening here. It's happening everywhere. What do you need? What do you have? We basically have all the tools. And we just say, look, whatever you need, we'll provide for you. And then they go through and they say, we don't have this training to, for our detectives to know how to go undercover. Or we don't have the, the appropriate, the proper tools to do a search warrant. The, the software, the hardware that's required to analytic, you know, to, to digitally analyze a, a smartphone, yeah, whatever it is. And so we provide those tools and that training. And sometimes they'll say, look, we need you to pose as an American. And then the most important question, though, during that first meeting is, when we help you rescue kids, what will you do with them? Yeah. And if they don't, they, they generally give us an answer we're not happy with. It's usually, like, oh, we have our state run this. No, we don't do that. So we we go to the meeting already having vetted other NGOs, other nonprofits who specialize in the aftercare. And we vet them. We partner with them. We make sure they have what they need. And then we say, we will only work with you if you promise in writing and an agreement that any kids rescued will go here, here, or there. And that's it. Because we aftercare is the most important part to us. If If they don't have that and they're not healed, there was never a rescue. Right. So, and then from there, depending what they say, 
Sometimes it's just a training. Sometimes it's like a long-term undercover operation that we go undercover. Sometimes it's just building a, a tool. We build a digital forensic lab, for example, in Thailand. That's what they needed. Uh, an entire lab where uh, law enforcement from four countries come in to get into the dark net and get leads and then go home and get their own bad guys. Wow, that is amazing. So for someone who's listening to this who thinks like, oh, is that really happening though? Or how big of a problem is this? Can you speak to that? Sure, yes. So human trafficking altogether, and that includes slave labor, sex trafficking, organ harvesting. Those are the main categories. It's $150 billion a year business. That's according to the UN, US State Department. That's, that's, that is confirmed. Um, so to give some perspective to that, because that's such a, a number that's hard to grasp, the amount of money spent every year to buy and sell human beings and children is the same as with that money, you could purchase every NBA team, every Starbucks franchise in the world, and still have enough money left over to send every American child to college for four years. So that's wow. how much money is spent every year buying and selling human beings. Wow. <laughs> I just, there's, there are no words for that. So, And the United States, might I add, is the number one demand for child sex. We are the number one consumers of child exploitation material or child rape videos, as I just like to directly call it, because that's what it is. Yeah. We're the demand. We're the ones traveling. And um, we're, we have the, the largest population of pedophiles in the world. And just recently, the, the State Department um, identified a frightening statistic that we, the United States is now in the top three countries for destination countries for trafficking. They, these traffickers want their kids in our markets because this, is the, because this is where the money can be made. They'll spend more money and this is where the clients are. So yes, you know, pe people sit back and they say, this is a problem far, far away from me. I don't have to think about it. No, no, no. If you have children, your children are living in a society that has the largest amount of predators. Right. So, Okay. So that leads me into another question, which is how do we protect our own kids? I'm sure you get that question all the time. Are there some things that you tell parents to do or to know? Yes. The most important thing, in, here in the United States especially, the predators access our children online. That's where they get them. And they're brilliant at it. We know because we track them. We arrest them. We know that they're doing this. And so parents need to understand what their kids are doing online. Uh, if you're my age or older, you miss the internet as a teenager. Right. And so this it's an interesting thing that happens is, you know, I— we can help our kids with almost everything because we've been there. We've been through the, the bad breakups or the bully on the playground or how to drive a car or your first ticket or we've been there. Mm -hmm. But being a child, of an adolescent, a teenager with raging hormones and your brain's not developed and the Internet, we haven't been there. And yeah. so we just don't think about it. We don't know the dangers because, you know, we didn't see them. And so I tell parents, you know, would you let I ask them, would you let your child go bar hopping on a Friday night Un unsupervised. Oh, of course not. Yeah. Would you let your child have an internet access behind a closed door in your home? Well, yeah, it happens every night. That is about a thousand times more dangerous than yeah. bar hopping. What? How can you say that? I've seen my child's Facebook pages, wholesome. It doesn't matter how wholesome it is. They're two clicks away from the devil right. at any moment. And the devil's looking for them. And so we're in a crisis right now, by the way, because they, there have been, in the last several months, there's been literally millions of additional reports 
of child sexual abuse originating online than there was at the same time last year. So the other thing I tell parents, and this is not a political issue, even though everything gets politicized these days. Yeah. These are the facts. This whole thing about schools and closing schools and opening schools and the whole shutdown and the COVID thing. We need to talk about it because it's hurting kids. The untended consequence of shutting down the schools. Let me tell you that that's the reason there's been about 6 million additional reports this year. Because the infrastructure that schools create is a safety net. It keeps kids safe. After school programs, lessons, music lessons, whatever. These things keep kids safe. Right. When we work in developing countries that don't have the blessing of that infrastructure, there's high trafficking. It's happening here. Think about it. Kids are told, stay here, stay in the house. Here's your smartphone. Here's your laptop. Stay here. Me and mom got to go figure out how to save our jobs and and, and scavenge for food and toilet paper and everything else, right? (laughs) And do your homework online. Do your homework online and stay here. Don't go to your friend's house. There's no music lessons. There's no sports. There's no school. The pedophiles are also home. Yeah. In mass. And they are saying, because we're tracking, it's harvest time. They're sitting ducks. And that's what happened. Just, just not far from my home a few weeks ago, this, this 42-year-old pedophile was arrested in Salt Lake City gaming with two six-year-old girls from Indiana. And he convinced them to send naked pictures of themselves. Six years old. He, they didn't know what they were doing. Okay, do this. Take your clothes. And he just kind of instructed them. Luckily, the attorney general's office in Utah caught him before he accessed the kids. But what's happening right now is there's millions of lines out right now. It's happening as we speak. Mm -hmm. And so we have to have the debate about opening schools, closing schools, include, I'm not the expert, I'm not gonna come up with the the decision, but we're not even having the discussion. And if I can say another thing, again, not to get too in the weeds on this, but it's so relevant right now, and parents need to know, is if you look at the science of COVID, I'm not a doctor, but I can read data. And the CDC has confirmed in every high-end analytical um, health expert, doctors from Stanford and other studies, are confirmed on the fact that if you're 65 years or younger, you have a 99.9% chance of surviving COVID. If you're older than that, 70 years older, it's 3 to 5%, very dangerous, super dangerous. And you should definitely, like the, the government should do everything they can to keep those people safe. But what about the people 60 years and and, and younger? They make up, they are 90% of the infrastructure that keeps our kids safe. They are our teachers and coaches and and instructors. Mm -hmm. And so the the real question that needs to be asked, I'm not going to answer it. It's not for me to answer. It's for the people to answer. But at least ask the question. If the kid's at the table, if you let the kid at the table, at the policymaker's table, they're going to ask this question. What is a bigger threat to our society? Again, once we've taken care of the most vulnerable, I'm talking about the, those 90% of people who are under 60, who, who are our teachers, who keep the things kids safe. What is a bigger threat? A virus with a 99.9% survivability rate or the trade-off, which is hundreds of thousands, probably millions of kids who will be sexually assaulted because of the shutdowns. There's your choice. That's the real question. And no one's asking it. You guys, I mean, I know you're right now in the middle of these debates right we're right. here in here in orange county and it's just i'm we're tired i'm tired of the kids not being considered and then one crisis leads to the next and again i'm this is not political but this is reality right what happened to george floyd was horrific illegal grotesque things need to change i'm from law enforcement things need to change there's no question about it but these cries of defund the police 
what does that mean? I don't know what that means. I'm, I've been watching carefully. And what it looks like it means is that we, that the police in a lot, in a lot of cities, if they lose funding, the first thing to go, I know this, working with law enforcement my entire life, the first thing to go is proactive investigations. Because that's the thing that if you don't know, then you're not responsible for it, right? The reactive police work has to be done. It's the robberies, it's the thefts, it's the assaults on the street, it's the, but child crimes don't land on your desk. You've got to go out and be proactive, creative, you got to go get them. And so it's the first thing to go when you cut budgets because what we, what, what we don't know, we don't know, get it? So that's why in third world countries, they have such a high trafficking rate because they don't have budgets for proactive investigations. It's all reactive. It's all they can do to keep up with the homicides, right? And, the, and so it's very concerning as we have this debate about transforming the policing system, which I do think needs to happen mm-hmm. and, and changes do need to be made. But again, two times in one year, we're going to make decisions without letting the kids at the policymakers table. We're not thinking about them. Right. How might they be affected once again? And we need, we need police units to protect kids more than ever because of our, res- our first response to COVID. It's like the kids are just cast aside. We're not being loud. Well, because kids can't organize. Kids can't protest. They can't march in the streets. Yeah. And that's our job then. If they can't do it, we need to do it, which is what we're doing on July 3rd. We're getting very loud. Not, we're not anti-anything. We're not counter-anything. We're just pro-kids to make sure that they don't get lost in the mix. July 30th, right? July 30th. What did I say? You said July 3rd. Oh, that would have already passed. <laughs> July 30th, 3-0. Everybody, don't miss it. Yeah. So I'll give you a little background from where I'm coming from because my my audience is going to be listening to this. And when I started posting things about Black Lives Matter, I got a lot of people who would say, do you know what the real underlying, like this is this is their um, agenda. And I said, no, this is a, this is a treating person people as humans issue. This is overcoming racism. The same thing happened though when I said that I was going to interview you. I had a few people come at me and say, do you know that he, you know, is a right wing, whatever. And I responded saying, are you kidding me? This is, this should not be a political Mm -hmm. issue. But I know that you talked about when you, I believe you met with President Trump and then you had some fallout from that, right? Yeah. So tell me about yeah. that. So for, what, what, I'm just curious, they, like, how did I get deemed as a right? Because I've heard it too. Because I met with President Trump. Is that why they think I'm a, I think I'm so. a right winger or whatever? Yeah. Um, it's, it's just interesting because it's so not political to me. It's not. It's just it's just the facts on the ground, the kids. Like I say, I'm, this, I don't t- my party is not Democrat or Republican. My party is the kids. That's yeah. my party. And I, I was asked to go brief the president. He was having a trafficking and anti-trafficking seminar with all the agency heads, and it was a media thing at the White House, and he invited me to brief him. What's your perspective? You've spent your entire life fighting trafficking. What's your perspective? And I gave him a briefing. The next day, I get a call from our CFO, like, we have lost over 1,000 recurring donors. These are people that know we rescue kids. They give us a certain amount every month, which is, a, which is important to us because that's the thing that we can project budgets with our recurring donor base. Right. 1,000 people over 1,000 called and said, we're done. Wow. He met with the president, we're done. And my response was just like, they're like, Tim, do you want to call them? Do you want to call them? I said, no, I, I really don't. I don't want to call them. This is, is a sad commentary. I would have run just as fast if this was, you know, six years ago when President Obama called just as fast. And I would have said the exact same thing um, to any president because they are in power to, to help kids. And whether they listen to me or not, I don't know, but I'm going to go. Right. Right. 
And so what I realized is, wow, there are people, at least a thousand that you, this wasn't an issue of whether we can save kids or not. They know we can save kids because they've been supporting us for years. Mm-hmm. So the question is, or, or the conclusion I made, and this is the, this is why I chose not to call them. I said, look, if you hate one person or one idea or one president more than you love liberating children from a life of rape, if that's who you are, you better look at yourself in the mirror and, and, and I'm not going to even call you. So you, you can either come back after you look at yourself in the mirror or we, we don't, we actually don't really want you on our team Yeah, <laughs> because that is to me grotesque that you can hate one thing. And this is, we can say this, make this application about a lot of things, right? But it's like, how do you hate one thing so much more than you love liberating kids? These kids are in hell, but, but your hate overpowers that, that love. This is the problem with society. Right. right. And, and I, it's both sides, by the way, too. Like, I'm not, I think, I think the same thing could have happened if other people were in power. I think both parties could do this. Any party could do this. It's, it, there's this hate and divisiveness, which is just destroying us and it's hurting our efforts to rescue children. to your July 30th, what you guys are doing that day. And for anyone who's listening to this, who feels like, what difference could I make? Or I don't make that much money. I can't donate $100,000 like Tony Robbins. (laughs) (laughs) Or, you know, anybody, anybody who's feeling that way. I'm not an influencer. I don't have a million YouTube followers or a million Instagram followers. What's your, what's your response to that? My response to that is, we have a historical precedent for how we get rid of bad things in, in the world. Slavery, the illegalized form of slavery, existed for hundreds of years in this country. And why? How did that horrific thing happen for so many years? I love history. I, I write history books. I use history to help me understand what, how to deal with issues today, especially with what we do. And what happened in the 19th century was hundreds of thousands of people got loud. They didn't have to donate. They didn't have to be operators on the Underground Railroad. They didn't have to be influencers. But they got loud. They passed around material. They showed up at rallies. They supported people like Harriet Tubman and Frederick Douglass and Harry Beecher Stowe. And during the Civil War, when Abraham Lincoln met Harriet Beecher Stowe for the first time, she wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin and joined her voice with the powerful abolitionist voices. And he said to her, so you're the lady that wrote the book that started this war. He recognized. He didn't. It wasn't him that raised his hand one day and said, it's over. No, he was pressured and the, and the the voices got so loud, but it needs to come in mass. It can't just be a select group of influencers. It has to be hundreds of thousands of people that rise up with their voice and say, we have to make sure, we have to end this. We have to end child slavery, sex slavery. And that's what's happening. You know, there's 2 million children forced into the commercial sex trade every year. And so I would love to have 2 million people each person, each adult or, or child who's free, stand in for one of those kids and be their voice. That, and that's what you people can do. You don't need to donate. You don't need to just share, share the story. Luckily, we have more than just books these days. Our, our Uncle Tom's Cabin today can be a tweet. It can be uh, sharing one of our documentaries. We have uh, a documentary on Amazon called Operation Two Saint. Share that with people. We have a feature film coming out starring Jim Caviezel and Mary Servino called The Sound of Freedom. Get people to watch that. Just be a voice. Show up at our demonstrations on July 30th. We're in 80 cities right now and growing. Show up and stand in for one of those kids. And that's that's what people can do. 
All right. My husband and I, Neil, we're asking ourselves a really important question about your job. And I'm very curious what your answer is going to be. How do you maintain the spirit in your life doing this like really heavy work? And I know that you're a religious person. So Mm -hmm. how do you maintain that like purity or that strength to go out and do these things? So the first part, the first answer to that is I never would have done it, first of all, if I hadn't had an assurance from God that I was supposed to, because mm-hmm. I would have run from that. And so that happened early on when I was asked to, to join into this group, this child crimes group. I did not think that. I didn't train for that. And my wife and I prayed and we fasted and we meditated and we prayed more and we both felt, oh my gosh, we know we have to do this. So because I have that assurance from heaven, now I feel like, okay, then you have to help me. Yeah. Because I'm scared to death to see what I'm going to see. And it was about a thousand times worse than anything I could have dreamed. People can't conceive, and I wouldn't burden people with it, what it is. It is horrifying. If there's a stronger word, I would use it. So once I know that God basically blessed off on it and said, this is your commission, Mm -hmm. then I have, that helps my faith and my communication and my communion, my dialogue and my pleas for help. And I expect it will come and it has come. And my wife is a huge part of it. I share with her. I talk with her. Um, and and I, I, you know, I, I study my scriptures and I pray and I, these things are important to keep my spirit strong. The other thing that I've learned to do is to turn the lights on in the dark is serve people. Mm-hmm. Like make it about service. Something magical happens when you serve people in any capacity, whether it's in trafficking or just helping your neighbor or just being a service-minded person. And I, because this question is so important to me because I had to, like, I was in the trenches yeah. <laughs> of darkness. How do I get out? How do I stay light? And the, the number one thing on my list is actually serve. Because mm-hmm. when you serve, actually, there's a physiological response. This is scientific. Even, even atheists or any believe talk about this, that when you serve and you pray, that's why I mentioned the atheist reference, serving or praying your brain releases a cocktail of chemicals, dopamine, and, and um, actually it's more the serotonin and oxytocin and these, these beautiful chemicals that actually prepare your body. And people who have, a, an, who have an abundance of those chemical reactions tend to be more optimistic, tend to be more loving, tend mm-hmm. to be kinder, tend to get, be more creative, um, work well with people. And scientists can't explain why that is. It's not like some magic drug that just like makes you do those things. Well, what I believe it is, is it's God's way to prepare our bodies. Like, hey, if you serve one another, because that's a a covenant I want, he makes with his people. If you believe in in the Bible and the scriptures, if you serve one another, I'm going to bless you. Right. And the blessing begins with something he did to our brains. He gave us this reaction. But in my mind, what happens is that reaction just kind of transforms our bodies and gets us ready so we can more easily receive from above. That's where the creativity is coming in. That's where the love's coming from. That's where the optimism and all the good things you want. It's, it's not the chemicals. Mm-hmm. It's, it's heaven. Right. And so it's a magical formula. Actually, Tony Robbins was the one who taught me this. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah, he, he's like, read this research. He's like, the secret to living is giving. He always says that. Mm-hmm. And this is why. Because you actually open up your soul to these amazing things. And if, you're, if you have that going on, you can fight darkness. Yeah. You can almost do anything if you have that, if you're in that beautiful cycle of service and then receiving blessings from heaven that, you know, and I can't explain this. Part of it is miraculous. Like I'll walk into my house after a horrible case and it's like a wall goes up. This like beautiful veil that just says, 
I can't see the images anymore. I just see my kids. I see my wife. And it's like, I can't even, it's like, even if I tried to remember, it's like, I'm not going to let you. And so the Lord will bless people. Yeah. When, when, especially when you are willing to go into dark places to help his children. You know, there's, there's only one time in the Bible where God gets almost mafioso violent. <laughs> and it, since it's God, it's righteous. Right. But it's, it's, he says, it's better that a millstone be hung around your neck and you'd be tossed into the sea than you hurt one of these little ones. Right. And so that's, like I said, that's, maf- that's mafia stuff, right? <laughs> but it's, it's God saying it. Right. And so he cares a lot about his kids. And so I would say this to anyone who just can't even help us in the smallest way. Like even the fact that you have me on this show or anyone would even show up and listen to this takes bravery. No one, it's like people run from this subject. And so I just am grateful for anyone who is willing to even show up and listen, show up and demonstrate, show up and just or watch a video. And when you do that, I would encourage people who are, are hesitant to do it is consider the service you're actually providing for children. You will be blessed with the light to counter the darkness if you're willing to walk in to dark places for God's children. Yeah, that's so powerful. And I remember, I don't know if you'll remember this, but I remember that you and I had this conversation when we met um, at a dinner a couple of years ago. And I said, I'm a little nervous about sharing this and associating myself with this and maybe becoming a target. I'm already always worried about my kids being a target for anything. And I believe your answer was pretty similar to that, that, you know, you guys feel protected. And do you have any other advice around that? If someone feels like if I post something or if I support this, then maybe my kids become a target. I I would answer that same way that, that expect that God is going to protect you when you're defending his children. And also there's, there's, there's power in numbers too. The, The bigger we get, the less, concerned I am about the threat because Mm -hmm. when you get so big even the people that would do you harm perhaps traffickers or people they're they're, they shy up they're like I can't I can't go up against this machine right it's gotten too big and and that's kind of where we're where we're at now thank goodness I was more scared when we were little and no one knew who we were and it's like let's snuff them out before they get too big and believe me they tried but now it's like hey if they're coming around let's just go the other way or better yet let's stop selling kids let's stop hurting kids that's where it's trending now so join your voice with us and there's power in numbers yeah and if anything happened to any of our supporters you can believe we would be on it in, immediately and not only that but our law enforcement partners because we all are just working together to create this giant machine and beautiful wave that will just knock out all the darkness yeah i believe that I wanted to ask you, we watched um, Operation Toussaint. Am I saying that right? It's actually, too, it should be Toussaint in French, but in, in Haitian Creole, they pronounce it Toussaint. Oh, Toussaint. Which I learned the hard way. In okay. the documentary, I actually say Toussaint, and then someone corrected me, like, you said it wrong. Oh. One, one of my Haitian, oh, so it's Operation Toussaint, yeah. Okay, <laughs> so we watched that last night, and you made a brief mention of miracles, and I wanted to just see if there are any that come to mind that you would feel comfortable sharing with us in this whole journey that you've had. Absolutely. And it goes to, you know, it, it goes to the, the whole thing about doing God's work and prayer is a big part because we expect the miracles. So one of the, one of the miracles, actually the footage of this is in Toussaint, but I don't think I ever had the chance to really explain the background of what was happening. 
in the movie Operation Two Saint, it begins, as you recall, with us operators in a van with some law enforcement, and we're saying a prayer. Yeah. Our translators actually saying the prayer in Haitian Creole. Now, and then it goes and it stops and says 24 hours earlier, right? And then it mm -hmm. goes from there. So it, in that moment, it culminates in this bust, in this arrest. What was happening is we had identified this horrific trafficker who was kind of a kingpin of, of, of trafficking. Her name is Cho. That's what they call her. And she's very elusive. We knew she had children, but we didn't know where the kids were. And so we had to make a decision. Do we arrest her right now, hoping that we will, by, just by the vicinity where she gets arrested, we know she's going to be having kids. Or do we keep doing surveillance on her until we watch? But she's too, she, we would never see her with the kids. That yeah. makes sense. Yeah. So we decided, you know what, let's just pray. Let's go arrest her and then pray for a miracle that we'll find the kids. They'll, they must be close by because she's out in the streets negotiating with the, with, the, with the sicko clients. Right. So that's what we were praying for. So what, what didn't get picked up on the cameras is as the van was three minutes to busting Cho, one of my videographers who videos for the evidence and for the documentary, he comes hopping back to the back of the van where I'm sitting in the back. And there's three Haitian police officers, SWAT geared, geared up, who are facing out the back van. The door's going to open. They're going to jump out, turn left, hard left, and Cho's going to be right there. So he jumps back and he takes his little GoPro camera and puts it on the helmet of one of the cops and starts wrapping it like sloppily with like duct tape. I'm like, I'm like, Jacob, what are you doing? Like, this is, we have no time. He's like, I don't know. Real spiritual guy, you know? And he's just yeah. like, I just feel prompted to put a, a camera on this guy's helmet. It's like, that is so weird. Yeah. And, and, and the Haitian cop is just like, whatever, no. He's got this like GoPro camera like kind of dangling off the top of his. It looks like, it, he looks cool. Now he looks like a, a miner of some sort, right, with his hat. <laughs> so anyway, we're like, okay, whatever. So we go, the doors open, boom, we arrest her. There's a couple of clients that we took down, and it's just awesome. And then we're like, okay, where are the kids? And she won't talk. We hope we do like an on-spot interrogation. She's like, I'm not telling you anything. Yeah. And then we look across the street, and this red door opens. The problem is no cameras were filming this part. Oh. But this red door opens because no one expected it. But I saw it open, and I and I see these three kids come out, and they're dressed like. Just they're, they're, first of all, their looks are just shattered, but they're dressed like sex workers, right? Yeah. And I'm just like, what is going on? So we run over to them, and then this cop comes out, behind him, and he's just dazed, and he says, "I, I lost them all. I lost them all." I'm like, what do you mean you lost them all? We lost two. It's like all, all the all the Johns, all the clients. They were in here, and they ran out. I, I just, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do. It's like, what happened? He's like, he, he and obviously we recognized quickly what happened. I mean, we found her, her little child brothel right there. Yeah. And he's like, I lost him. I lost him. There's about 15 cops. Okay. Only one went into that red door. And Jacob Justice comes out with my video over and he says, you didn't lose him. It's like, what do you mean? And it was dark. We couldn't see there's lights and it was it was nighttime, the, the, the headlights of the cars. And he gets a little closer. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. And there's a little GoPro. It was that cop. Wow. So what happened was everyone went out hard left. He said he didn't know why. He went right. And he went right. And, and in the corner of his eye across the street, he saw this little girl run into the red door. And he's like, what's that? So he should have called for backup, but he didn't. He just ran in. Mm -hmm. 
And when we got the footage, we got the identities of all the clients. Wow. And more importantly, but also just haunting, is the fact that when we looked at the footage, he didn't even, he didn't even realize this, I don't think, but we actually caught. And my 17 years, I've never seen this doing rates. We literally caught on camera the client literally in the act of sexually assaulting this child. Oh, my gosh. Which never made the documentary, of course. Lock that up. Lock, you know, for ev- it's, it's just evidence. Yeah. But it's evidence that will put those people behind bars and condemn them for, for life and forevermore. Yeah. And it was a miracle. It was an absolute miracle that not only did God lead us right to the kids, but provided the evidence in the most unique way in the last minute, as God usually does. And then mm-hmm. he intervenes in the 11th hour, so no one can dispute whether it was him or not, right? And and that was a miracle. This is why we pray, because yeah. God can see what we can't, and we can never see the whole thing. Wow, that's remarkable. Having just watched Two Saint, you remember, there is footage. It shows the red yes. door opening, but then it, and then it says, I think it actually gives you some text. It says, what we caught here, blah, blah. Yes. But what you didn't know... Which how they found the is, red door. Is how it was a miracle and how that camera shouldn't have been on that guy's head. Wow. That's truly incredible. Okay. I have a couple more questions for you. What do you wish people would understand about what you guys are trying to do? If you could sit everyone down, every family in America, and just tell them, you know, really have something sink in. What do you wish people really understood? How real it is and how big it is because they don't realize that. We come home from a rescue operation, and then I, I look at the news. I look at the headlines. I'm like, these are the headlines? These are the headlines. It's usually this person lied, and this, and then you read it, and you're like, I don't even think you. It's just a game. The things that we're paying attention to and being outraged over, but I know what's going on. People like to be outraged. You actually get a, a, a little dopamine hit when, you, when you're outraged. People want to be outraged. They want to. And so the news feeds that. You know, clickbait, just mm-hmm. some headline. Then you read the article, like, that's not even what the... Right. You don't even back up your headline, but they don't care. They're providing a service that people want, and they want to be outraged. And so what I would ask people, because it's just so disheartening when you come home and you're like, there's millions of kids enslaved being raped for money every day, a lot of them by our countrymen, and this is the headline? Because that should be the headline every day until we end it. That should be the headline. And here's an idea. if Since you want to be outraged anyway, do it. But be outraged over this. Yeah. It's real. It's horrible. It's the worst thing in the world. It's the fastest growing criminal enterprise in the world. And if we don't get outraged, it's a nightmare that's eventually going to reach you. Because it's, it's going to grow and grow until it reaches you. And that's a nightmare you're not going to wake up from. Yeah. And that's what I would tell families. Wake up. Get outraged over something that we know is real. And, and even more than that, it's probably the only thing left on the table these days. And this is a sad commentary on our nation. But there may only be one thing left that every party, every creed, every religion, every thought out there all agrees on. Because we can't clearly agree on anything. (laughs) Anything. Right. But there's one thing left on the table, and that's that children shouldn't be kidnapped, raped, trafficked, or have their organs removed from their bodies. I think everybody still agrees with that. So apart from the fact that that's the most important service we could be rendering right now, it has the side benefit of being the one thing we can all Come around. <laughs> we can actually heal if people of diverse ideo- ideologies could come together and get in that same trench and fight for the kids. We could do some healing for right. the nation. 
by coming together. It's like the, we call ourselves Operation Underground Railroad for a reason. There's only one other time in our nation's history, I think, where we were this divisive and, and kind of hateful towards each other. And it was during the 19th century. And the issue was slavery and the Civil War and all that. But there was a group of people that were Black people, white people, Mexican-Americans, German-Americans, that just put aside the hate and divisiveness. And that would have been really hard in those days. when they did it because they found that thing on the table, which was human captivity. Mm-hmm. And they created the, uh, the Underground Railroad. And they worked together. They found a cause greater than any of their own personal desires, ideologies, beliefs, whatever. And they said, let's just come around this. And they worked effectively together and, and, and rescued hundreds, thousands of, of people who were in bondage and then helped create the, the, the abolitionist movement, which moved the government, which ended slavery altogether. So there's a precedent for this, and we should hark back to that and utilize it. Yeah. Well, you've given us so many incredible things to think about and to process, and I hope that people feel as inspired as I do by everything that you're doing and what you're sharing. And um, as I've followed your journey, I've become more and more just invested in this and invested in trying to get other people to see what you're doing and to do some good together. So I have one last question for you that I always ask, and that is if there's one message that you want people to remember from this interview, what do you want that one message to be? You know, it would be, it wouldn't be about trafficking directly. The one message I would reiterate is find the power in serving people. Whether it's, whether you, you, you choose to help us fight trafficking as your service or something else. But if we all just would serve, even in the smallest ways, if everyone had that as their focus, the serve, every decision we'd make, in fact, you can, almost any crossroads you have, little decisions, big decisions, we all have to make them every day. And I wish everybody would just, every time they came to that crossroads of any decision, which of the two, I don't know what to do, but which of the two is going to actually help people the most? Simple. That's usually going to be the answer. And if everybody kept taking that road, we would see so much less divisiveness. Yeah. People would have their chemical reaction and their communion with their creator, and we would be kinder to each other. And once we can get there, that'll make it easier for us to all rescue kids too. Yeah. So service turns the lights on. And if you don't believe it, try it. Amazing. Thank you so much, Tim, for being here today and giving us this incredible interview. Where can people find you and join in with you on July 30th and do all of those things? So if you go to our, our, our website, OURrescue.org, or follow us at, at OURrescue, um, you can get personal messages from me on my personal stuff, which is uh, at Tim Ballard 89 And if you're following that, you'll know exactly what's going on and get all the information. Even another route of information, if you want to text, help them, one word, help them to 51 555 and then you'll be getting updates regularly just text messages this is what's happening for july 30th just to keep you up to, like rapidly up to speed awesome so, thank you so much thank Tim. you corinne thanks so much for listening to mint arrow messages make sure you follow us on instagram at mint arrow subscribe to our apple podcasts and rate and review us if you like us And to get show notes, go to mintarrow.com slash podcast, and you can even sign up to get show notes emailed right to your inbox, and we'll email you every time there's a new episode.